Philippians chapter 3 is where we are this morning. Uh, what you're going to see in Philippians is this. Paul plants this church in Philippi. Philippi is a strategic city, just like all the cities that Paul plants uh, a church in. And what happens is Paul ends up leaving the church um, to plant another church, and he ends it up, while he's in prison uh, in Rome, he writes to this church and reminds them really of their first love and their first love being the gospel. And and so what he's doing here, he's encouraging these maturing believers. And and so he wants them to get the gospel right. And I want to tell you this morning that getting the gospel right matters more than anything else. The way that you understand the gospel is the most important thing about you. If you don't understand the gospel in areas of your life, that is where sin creeps in. So I don't believe that people just have Uh, addictions. I think people have gospel issues. I don't believe that people just have marital problems. I think those are gospel issues. I don't think it's just financial problems. I think they're they're gospel issues. And so it's very important that we get the gospel right in, in two primary ways. One would be conversion, that we understand the way that the gospel works in the conversion experience, but also through sanctification, which is how we grow and how we understand the gospel continually in our lives. And and here's the way I've heard it in conversion. Is my mic going in and out? Am I good? Okay. Here's the way I've heard it in conversion. In in conversion, this is the way I've heard the gospel being proclaimed. I I worked as a youth counselor uh, for a Christian band for a short period of time, which is where a lot of interesting things happen, all right? I'm just going to be honest with you. In this setting, this Christian band plays this, um, I think it was like a revival and so they invite me to be a counselor for people who respond to the salvation call, like the, the invitation. And so the guys played the band. They did a great job like they always do. My, my friends are very gifted musicians, and I was able to, to help, help them in some ways. And the, the speaker, we didn't know who he was. And so that's always a mixed bag. You never know what you'll get with that. And so the speaker gets up, and he shares... These stories, these uh, horrible stories, like he, he talked about the Columbine shooting, and he just kept playing on the emotions of adolescence and read one verse. I am not joking. He, he took the Bible. He read one verse. He closed the Bible. He turned around and put it down. That's always a bad sign, by the way, if you're ever hearing someone proclaim the gospel when they shut it and put it away. That's not a good sign, all right? He puts it away, does all these stories about high school students dying in car accidents and dying of drug overdose, and he uses famous rock stars that have overdosed and how we don't need to do that, and obviously, you know, that's, duh, like, I don't want to do that. And, And so he's sitting there, and then he gives this invitation for people to respond if they want to become believers. He's telling all these stories. We don't hear... We maybe heard Jesus a few times in the talk, but we didn't hear about what Jesus did. We didn't hear about what he overcame. We didn't even hear about the cross or sin or repentance or faith. None of those things. And he says, if you want to respond, come forward. He didn't get the response that he wanted, so he pushed it further. If you struggle with sin, come forward. Okay, everybody should be up here or they're liars, right? And so... Everybody's up there. I'm a counselor. I'm like, maybe I should be up here, like being counseled, because I struggle with sin. And this high school student comes forward, and I'm talking to him. I'm like, hey, you know, what are you up here for? He's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, well, 
you know, do you know Jesus? No, I don't. Do you want to trust Jesus today? Is that why you come forward? No. Okay. So then they say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. All these people here this, made this big commitment. I'm like, you didn't make a commitment. Don't raise your hand. You did not do this, right? And so they take us in another room. And I'm not joking. The guy gets up, comes into the room, and he's like telling them how they made the most important decision of their life. I'm like, you've not made a decision. You don't love Jesus. Like, don't say that you've made a decision because I have not even shared the gospel with you. Another guy comes in and counts the people in the room. He's like, one, two, three, two, three. 16, right? And like, and then at the end of the night, we have a total number of people who had made a decision for Christ. And it was some astronomical number. I mean, they may have even counted me, you know? I don't know. And, and so... That's not the gospel. It's not responding to an emotional message where, we don't, where it's Christless and empty. And then we pray a prayer. I remember when I was a youth guy, I took my uh, students to a, a Duke football game, which is the beginning of probably why this went so badly. Um, you, know, you know which team I'm on. Um, in that, a, a professional athlete comes and shares the gospel. And he shared, he did share about Christ and what Christ did. But then he told everybody in the entire audience to bow their heads and close their eyes. And then he led them through a sinner's prayer. And then he said, everybody look at me. If you prayed that prayer, you are going to meet Christ in heaven. And I'm like, no, they're not. Right? No, they're not. It's not a prayer that does anything for anybody. If anything, Jesus never said, pray a prayer. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Right? So it's, it's, that's the most gospel-less message of all. And I think many people, I think even that come to this church, may have experienced that and say, I'm going to heaven because someone told me to close my eyes and pray a prayer. And they said that I repeated the same word and that magical phrase caught God's attention. And now I'm in heaven with him when I die. And I can do whatever I want now because I prayed that prayer. I'm good, right? I'm good. And, and so that's one way through conversion. I've seen the gospel completely distorted. The other way is through sanctification, when I became a believer at 11 years old, I had the same kind of mindset of, I've got to clean myself up now. I mean, it was just, it felt like only a few seconds until I became a believer where I was taken into a little small conference and we had to watch the dangers of rock and roll music, Hell's Bells, right? And if you play a song backwards, you hear it this way, then the devil's going to get in your mind and he's going to control you and you need to burn all your albums. So I burned all my albums, right? I tore my, my um, Iron Maiden poster off my wall. For those of you who were born before 1980, you know what that is. Metallica, it's the same stuff. Um, and so I had to tear that off my wall and that was my way. I got to clean up. And I remember reading my Bible and asking God to show me something new. What else do you want me to do, God? I'm, I'm, I'm a believer now. What else do you want me to do? And so I would try to find hidden messages in the Bible. <laughs> like I would say, <clears throat> I'm just going to write Zechariah 2. What does he say for me in Zechariah 2? Oh, it's about this. And oh, I don't know. And I would get so angry, I would just throw my Bible down. I'd say, what else do you want from me, God? 
And so my part of me understanding even my growth was, I've got to clean my life up now. I've got to do this now. I've got to add to this. I'm a Christian now, but I, I don't want to be a junior varsity Christian. I want to be a varsity Christian. I want to move up in my Christian faith and be this amazing Christian where God looks at me and he says, I am fully pleased in all the things. I'm so glad that my cross uh, accomplished the work that it's done in you because of all the things that you're doing for me. And so I, I can hear the gospel in these two primary ways in this culture. And it just eats our culture alive in evangelical circles. We think that the gospel is a prayer that we pray. That's conversion. And we think sanctification is this process by which we, do, we continue to do things that make God happier. So he just continues to love us more by what we do. And so these are things that I think hurt our culture. But the interesting thing is... This is nothing new. I mean, Paul is dealing with the exact same thing here in Philippians chapter 3. The exact same thing. Let's, let's turn there and look and see what he hammers out here in Philippians 3. Verse 1. Finally. Okay, stop. Finally what? Because it doesn't seem like this is the end of the... I mean, there's a whole other chapter. So this is a very long finally if this is the finally. So finally what? He's continuing on this tangent, really, of what it means to have joy in Christ. Like, if you go up to chapter 2, let's look at verse 17 and 18. It says this, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So this idea of rejoicing in Christ is continued through Paul's uh, chapter 3 and, and what Paul says. He says, finally, so because we rejoice in each other, because we rejoice, because Paul rejoices with this church, he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. So Paul is an advocate of joy. And we talked about this last week a little bit, the difference between joy and happiness. Like today, uh, at around 4, 3 o'clock, clock, you'll know my happiness, how that weighs out between which team wins. That's happiness. But my joy uh, shouldn't affect that. My joy does not even play into that because my joy is in Christ, which is permanent, which doesn't change because it's I, even in suffering, even in good times, I'm still looking to the cross. I'm still find my significance and my satisfaction and my affection in him. That's joy. That's what Paul is saying. I he rejoices in and he wants the church to rejoice in even more. And so what is the one thing that can hurt the joy of the church? It's a distortion of the gospel. It's distorting the truth of the gospel. And, and it's, it's a way of legalism that says, yeah, Jesus plus this equals this. That is the one thing that Paul is saying here that will rob the joy of the church. So, so you see here, there's joy. But then you see in verse 2, he goes right into it. So if we're rejoicing, we have joy. But what should we look out for if we want to keep this joy consistent in our lives? This is what he does. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What is he talking about here? He's talking about these, this group of people called the Judaizers. And he calls them dogs. 
You see, this is strange because what about chapter 1, verses 15 through 18? Let's just look at that. We'll have it up on the screen. Chapter 1, verses 15 and 18 says this. So indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerity, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If I'm ever in a good mood and I want to be in a bad mood, I'll turn on Christian television and hear preaching. I mean, if there's anything that can make me more furious is people that distort the gospel. And I've even heard, like, people who watch crazy stuff and say, well, see, the gospel's being preached, and they'll even do this verse, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Right? Have you heard that before? Like, when, when the, the gospel's being distorted, yeah, he's totally a false teacher, but the gospel's being proclaimed, so I rejoice. Paul's not talking about content here in chapter 1. Paul's talking about the motivation that someone has to preach for their own, their own self-glory. But the content, he rejoices because the content is right. This is why his attitude changes drastically between chapter 1 and chapter 3. Because what he's mad about is chapter 3 is the content is being hijacked. He's like, I am furious that someone is jacking with the gospel. Someone's changing what the gospel is. He's furious that the gospel is being, um, being mutilated in this way. So he's not rejoicing here in chapter 3. Because the motivation in chapter 1 is a different set of people. It's not the Judaizers in chapter 1. It's these people who want to be rock stars. They want to be famous preachers. But he says, hey, at least the content's being proclaimed well. But in chapter 3, it's not. It's not. And so what you have is Paul, 20 years earlier than he writes this letter in Philippi, to the church in Philippians, he writes also another letter in, to the church of Galatia 20 years earlier to the same group of people. He is furious with these Judaizers. He never lets go of how they consistently distort the gospel. He is frustrated with these guys consistently throughout Scripture. I mean, look at what he says in Galatians 1, 6-9. I'll just read this quickly. I am astonished. This is the church in Galatia. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So he calls it a totally different gospel that these Judaizers that we see in Philippians teach. He says, not, not that there are, is another one, but there are some of you who trouble and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But notice what he says about this gospel. He says, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? accursed. And I've said before, I'll say again, if anyone is preaching to, to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. He repeats it. He says, even if an angel from heaven comes down and preaches the gospel, something contrary to the gospel, let that angel be accursed. Notice even further, these, these Judaizers, they are Consistently telling the churches, they would go into Galatia, they would go into Philippi, they would these young, new churches, and they would go into and say, hey, yeah, it's, it's cool that you trust Christ, but you should also be circumcised. 
Like if you really want to reach this high level of spirituality in Christianity, you should obey the law of Moses. They're like, what part? All of it. Oh, okay. That's really hard. Yeah. It's really difficult. And so they would consistently add to the gospel. And so they held circumcision so high that even Peter was, was persuaded by them in Galatians. I mean, he's like the pillar of the church. And he comes in and these guys are like, you should be circumcised. He's like, you know what, that's a good idea. Like, I don't know, you would really have to convince me hardcore on this one, right? If you want to reach varsity level, this is what you got to do. I'd be like, I'm out, right? I'm out. But what does Paul do here in Galatians? Paul says in Galatians 5, 11 through 12, notice the sarcasm that Paul uses toward these Judaizers. He says this, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. So Paul's like, Okay, if circumcision makes you varsity, why don't you just skip varsity? Go straight to the NBA. Like, totally cut the whole thing off. That's what he's saying. (laughs) Get over it. Go to the NBA. Be an NBA all-star. Be the top-notch guy. Go for it. Emasculate yourself. If that's what's going to make you spiritual, go for the whole thing. Then he even says in, in Titus 1, to the same group of people. Notice how Paul is aggressive toward these Judaizers. Titus 1, 10 through 13, it says, For there are many who are unsubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. There it is again. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for sim- shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Skip down in verse, um, the latter part of 13. It says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not, de- not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. So Paul is consistently focused on the content of the gospel. He's not lax in the content. He's not saying, well, They said this wrong about Christ, but at least they're saying the name Jesus. No. Paul is heavy on the content of the gospel. He wants to make sure this is right. He says in verse 2, they they mutilate the flesh. He calls them dogs, which are not pet toys. It's not a poodle that he's describing. He's talking about a vicious dog, a junkyard dog. One that would attack and one that would bite at your heels. This is what he's describing. So, what does he do? He explains then what a true Christian looks like. He says, for verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the, the Spirit of God and the glory of Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So what was circumcision? Circumcision was a removal of flesh for cleanliness purposes, and it was to show and demonstrate in, in Jewish culture how sinful we are and how we, that we need that sinfulness to be removed, the uncleanliness to be removed. And so that was a symbol in which Jewish young boys would say they are committed to Christ because they are 
removing this sinfulness. And so what we see in the New Covenant, the New Testament, because of what Christ has done, the Spirit of God circumcises our hearts. He removes all of the junk and the stuff that interferes our communication with God, and He removes the flesh. That's what it means to worship Him. We have access to the Father because He's removed all the bad stuff. Does that make sense? So the Spirit of God has circumcised our hearts. And he's saying we're true Christians, not because we participated in a ritual, but because Christ has circumcised our hearts. The Spirit of God lives within us, and now we can have a, communication, a direct communication with God with no interference. So you have this beautiful picture that's been distorted for years, And so what Paul does is he unpacks the flesh. Look at, look at what he does. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anything else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And what he does is he begins to lay these jokers out. Like he confronts the Judaizers in a profound way. He's like, hey, if somebody should brag in what they've done, it should be me. So what does he do? He says in verse 5, he says, circumcised on the eighth day. What does that mean? When he was a child, he was circumcised on the eighth day, which means he belonged to, to this custom that these guys hold so dearly from a very young age. The eighth day, a, 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 Jew, a Jewish boy would be circumcised, and that would show his commitment to God, his early commitment to God, his family's commitment that they're going to raise him up and train him to be a devout Jew. And he's saying, yeah, I'm a part of that. I'm in that. I'm born into this. And so... So this is, he, he would, what Paul would do and what he had to learn later was this was just a ritual that he elevated above all things. And so this is very similar to, to our culture where people, whether it's, a, whether it's circumcision or a, a Roman Catholic mass or an infant or adult baptism or communion, Paul had to realize that none of these acts in and of themselves impress God. And so what we consistently do, even in our own culture, and, th- and this is what the Jews would do with circumcision, and they would elevate it to something that it wasn't. They'd say, God's favors on me. I've been circumcised on this particular day. And Paul's like, hey, I'm an eighth dayer. I am the best possible scenario for a circumcised Jewish boy. Then he does this. He says in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, he says, of the people of Israel... So he's rubbing salt on these Judaizers' wounds. They're like, oh, oh, he's, he's from the people of Israel. He's, he's one of us, right? And so some of the Judaizers were, were not even converted that were born from Israel. They would not even be converted. Some of these were Gentile converts, non-Jews who became believers. And he's saying, hey, no, I'm a part of this thing that you guys hold so dearly. I was born there. I mean, it's, it's very similar even to... Us being a Christian nation, quote unquote. You say, well, I'm American, so I'm a Christian, right? I mean, we're, we're supposedly like 60 to 70% Christian. That's what we're supposedly are. Now, I do not think that's the case at all. I, I, honestly, I, I mean, I don't even try to be controversial. I don't know if we were ever really a Christian nation. I think there were Christendom existed. But I don't know if every single one of our founding fathers were born again believers. They're not. 
They even said that they weren't, right? I'll take their word for it. So why do we have this mindset of we're American, we vote this way, we're Christian? I mean, I don't know about you, but I grew up in that church. I mean, the Lee Greenwood song, Fourth of July, right? Anybody? I'm proud to be an American. At least I know I'm free, right? I proudly stand up. And it's that weird pause next to you, and right? <laughs> and we, you know, God bless America. And I'm not against being patriotic for our country. I love our country, but Paul is saying, listen, it doesn't matter which country you're from when it all comes down to it. See, I'm a Jew. I'm one, of, I'm one of the guys that you're drooling over. It doesn't matter. It says, of the tribe of Benjamin. This is an impressive credential that Paul has. He's saying here, listen, yeah, I'm from the people of Israel, yes, but I'm also from the tribe of Benjamin, which is interesting. Most Jews would not even know which tribe they belong to because of the, the scattered churches and the dispersion of, of um, Jewish people, people didn't even know which tribe they belonged to, but because Paul's family was so hyper-Jewish that he would have known which tribe he belonged to. If you want to do a great study, let's look at how interesting this tribe is. It was Benjamin was the younger of the two sons born of Jacob's wife, Rachel. And so it's got an interesting history, and it was a very unique unique tribe that he came from. And so it's, it's very similar to how we say, well, my family was born in a Christian home. Grandma took us to church, right? And she's got enough religion for all of us, you know? She read the King James Bible to us on Christmas before we opened the presents. And now I'm a, I know I'm a Christian because I'm a part of this heritage, Paul's saying, no, it doesn't matter which country you're from. It doesn't matter which family you come out of. You could be born of the, you can be raised in the best Christian home possible. It doesn't really matter. So these are three things that Paul had on his resume that had nothing to do with what he did as what his family did. The next four things he talks about are what he did. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? Well, it means that he stuck to the tradition of his parents and his grandparents and their grandparents all the way from the tribe of Israel. He's like, I have held on to being a Hebrew of Hebrews. He has stuck with it. He, he stayed with, he actually learned under one of the most predominant rabbis. He's like, hey, I'm the youth group all-star. I went to the mega church. I had the greatest youth pastor. I went on the missions trip. I I have all the Stephen Curtis Chapman CDs. Right? I signed a waiver that said I would not have sex before I got married. And it was put on on the White House lawn. Right? I dared. I'm not going to do drugs. I wore the t-shirt. Right? He's the youth group all-star. He's the poster child. He's like, I even went to one of your seminaries. I'm, I'm the poster child. I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. The next thing he talks about is concerning the law, I'm a Pharisee. He's the highest that you could possibly become. He's a Southern Baptist preacher, right? 
I'm the most aggressive for my faith. I will take a stand. I will do the anti-abortion walk, right? I will take the stand. But notice even what Jesus says about the Pharisees. John 5, 39, he says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these things are which, they te- which testify of me. So yeah, you find value in pointing everybody and dogging everybody out and calling people out, but you don't know me. You don't know me. You're the best of all the best. You're the best possible scenario poster child, but you don't know me. And so then he even goes on further. As as to zeal a persecutor. This is verse 6. A persecutor of the church. He was willing to fight for his own faith so much that he would go against those who oppose what he believed. And then even further. As to righteous which are under the law blameless. He's saying, yeah, outward appearance. I had it all. Everyone saw that I followed the law blamelessly. They could never call me out on following how I obeyed this system of circumcised on the eighth day. I obeyed the law of Moses. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm the poster child. I'm the poster child of what you people believe. But he says this, interestingly enough, in verse 7. But whatever... Gain I had. So you say, wait a minute. So are these bad things? Not necessarily. It's not necessarily. He said, there's gain here. There's good things that can come out of this. So there's gains from rituals. There's gains from taking communion. There's gains from baptism and circumcision. They are gains from there. They are gain. There's gain in being proud to be American. There is gain there. There's, there's gain to being the youth group all-star and being raised in a Christian home. Hey, you don't think I want that for my son? I, I want my son to be raised in a Christian home. And I want my son to, be, to become a believer at a young age. I'm not dogging that at all. There is gain there. Uh, there's gain from being a part of a great denomination or a great church. There's gain in being sincere for your beliefs and even sometimes opposing those who go against your beliefs. There's gain from having a good outward appearance, not going to rated R movies unless they're about Jesus, right? There's gain from, uh, from not doing out, not you know, smoking uh, cigarettes or drinking alcohol or, or dating girls who do or however that phrase goes. There's, there's gain there. There's gain. There's gain for owning all of the VeggieTale DVDs. There's gain to only listening to Christian music. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's gain there. I'm sure that there's gain there. And so what you see here consistently is he's saying, yeah, hey, I've gained from this. I'm not saying I I totally hate this, but what he's saying here is this. He builds this case. Hey, I am the poster child. I am this guy. But then he goes in further in verse 7. He says, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. He says, I count them 
as rubbish. I count them, some of your translations say, as dung. And I think even he would say, honestly, culturally, the S word. That's where he's going with this. This is what this is. Yeah, I've, I've done all of these things, but it's rubbish. It's the S word. I mean, he even echoes a similar phrase that kind of sticks out in Isaiah 6, 64, 6. He says, and all the righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, which is also translated minstrel rags. Hey, you've done these things, and they're good things, but in comparison to Christ, they're minstrel rags. They're rubbish. They're dung. Who cares? You're, you're American? Who cares? You raised in a Christian home? Who cares? You are part of this denomination and you fought hard and contended? Who cares? Paul says it's rubbish. Who cares? So, what's the good news here? Because it seems like he just destroyed all of us on the things that we throw in God's face and say, you owe me because this is what I've done for you. I've done this particular thing. I did the true love weights and I, I stayed this commitment and now you owe me, God. He's like, no, that's rubbish. It's rubbish. Here's the good news. He says, count everything as lost because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, this is verse 8, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I might gain him. So who's the goal? Him. He's the goal. He's saying, I must gain, I might gain him. This is a future tense. Says Paul a believer? Absolutely, Paul is a believer. I mean, just look at the next things that he says in verse 9. And being found in him, not having righteousness of my own, that becomes from the law, which comes through faith in Christ, that righteousness from God deepens faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that all means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he talks about being found in him. That's a believer. That's verse 9. Not having righteousness of my own that's a believer that's verse 9 it comes through faith in Christ that's a believer that's verse 9 so his relationship with Christ is there but he's saying I might obtain Christ he's talking future tense so he is wanting more of knowing Christ he says that I might know him I mean look at that language that we see His desire is to know Christ more, even as a believer. And he's saying, what causes me to be distracted from knowing Christ more is throwing all of this stuff in his face and making behavior modifications and thinking that is affection for Christ when it's just not. It's just not. He's willing to be like him. He wants to know him. That's what he says. That I might know him more in the power of resurrection. I might obtain Christ. His desire and his willingness is to know Christ more in suffering and in death. 
Notice the language he says. He made me his own. He's purchased me and bought me with the, cro- with, with the cross of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection. Now he's made me his own and I'm his. And he's mine. And so Paul is saying here his affection is for Christ to go even more. And what's causing the distraction that he wants his church to avoid is all that other junk that's rubbish. I don't, I don't know about you, but when I look at this, I say there are many things that I try to modify in my life, and I say that those are affections for Christ when they're not, and they're just things that are rubbish. I mean, I don't know about you, but when you, you got to a point where you feel unworthy, which you should be always at that point, by the way. I mean, I don't know any time in your Christian faith that you should feel worthy. Like, I've got this. I'm worthy now of benefits and things and trinkets. I'm worthy now. No, he's saying there, no one's worthy. But when I try, when I find myself in sin or find myself wanting to know him more as Paul is, I begin to resort to that list of things. Things that I hold dearly and try to throw them back in his face and say, no, no, no. See, listen, I am one of your guys because look what I've done. Look, I went to a Baptist church growing up, right? I got baptized at a young age, God. Look at that. See, my affections are for you. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm the goal, not those things. I'm what you're after. I am the treasure that you want to pursue. And that's where we find our joy, is him. He's the goal. So maybe one of the things that I think we need to hear this morning is this. Maybe when we find that our affection for Christ is not as predominant in our life. I'm saying you're a believer. You hate sin. You love God more than sin. You have a new heart in Christ. You're a believer. But maybe your affection for him, wanting to know him more, is just not as prominent. What do you think causes that? I think it's when we try to take these behavior modifications and force them into our lives and think that's the goal. I'm just going to do things that make him proud of me. He's not any more proud of you than the day that he gave his life for you. He died for you, not because he's proud of you, but because he's proud of himself, because he's the best thing that you could ever obtain. And he did that, and and he said, I'm going to make you my own. So he saw you in your depravity, in your sin, brought you out of that and said, you're my own. You're mine. I'm the goal now. Worship me alone. So my question is this. What truly stirs your affection for Christ? I mean, it could be a lot of different things. I've got to be honest with you. These last couple weeks, if I am really involved in following March Madness, I've got to be careful because I can focus so much on how a 20-year-old handles a ball And find my significance and my joy in that and my satisfaction in that, that I lose my affection for Christ. I I lose my desire to know him more. And so my reaction to that is, oh, I'll, I'll pick up next week. I'll read 11 more chapters than I would normally read in the Bible, right? 
I'll pray an hour longer, and now he's going to be so much more happy with me, and we'll be good. No, the goal is him. The goal is just seeing who he is. So what is it that stirs your affection for Christ? What is it that truly stirs your affection for Christ? And then here's the other question. What is robbing you from your affection with Christ? Is it those things that you're throwing in his face and saying, Look, I'm one of your boys. I'm one of your gals. I've done these things. You owe me. That's just going to rob your affection and never find true joy. Paul fights against this teaching because he knows that it robs us of our joy. When we put legalism and preferences in our lives that trump the gospel, it will only rob us of our joy.